Hey everyone, it's Raghu. I'm back with Mind Rolling. I'm back with Norman Fisher. Norman, welcome. Welcome, Thank welcome. You. Thank you. Great to be here again. Yeah. We did something a year and a half ago or so, maybe. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, Norman is a lot of different things, really. He's a, a teacher of Zen and a poet, translator. And you still have the Everyday Zen Foundation? Oh, yes. That's yeah. mainly what I do, yeah. Yeah, centered around there. But he's also involved in the world of Judaism, which we're going to hear about a little bit. And um, I just want everybody to know that they should look at the world could be otherwise. We'll have a link for it, okay, in terms of just helping your day-to-day -day balance, which Norman is an expert at. <laughs> and so, But uh, there's a wonderful book, um, When You Greet Me, I Bow, that just came out, which is a compilation of different essays that you've written over the years. And... What's uh, really interesting is the the palette of it. I mean, I didn't expect, first of all, the whole foundation around relationship, right? The first thing, and you call it, this is the foundation of the book, basically. And then it, it, it goes in lots of different wonderful directions, including around love, including around sex, including around business. And uh, so uh, it's... Uh, it's very comprehensive. And the other thing is, you can just open the book up, you know, just like coffee table book, chapter five, okay, whatever. You can dig into that thing of three, four, five, six pages and let it sort of inform you for the day. So it's really, it works in a lot of different ways. And, uh, you know, happy that you put it together. What, what brought you to put it together, by the way? Well, uh... I'm not sure, but I, I, I think it was this, that, that uh, a little bit long story, but the University of Alabama has a Poetics series, and they, Poetics series editors asked me to put together a collection of my essays on writing, religion, and spirituality for their series. So I went through and I found essays I had written over the last many, many decades on specifically writing and its relationship to spirituality. Mm. And I put all that together. And then I realized I had a lot of essays on Buddhism that didn't fit into that collection, but there were a lot of them. So then I thought, well, eventually, maybe I can put together a collection of my Buddhist essays. There's mm -hmm. a little bit of overlap. And in fact, there are some essays that appear in both volumes. But in a way, this is a companion volume. I mean, the University of Alabama is an academic press, so a lot of people, you know, general readers might not be aware of it. But there is a companion volume to this, uh, which is called Experience, mm. Thinking, Writing, Language, and Religion. And so that gave me the idea of looking into the Buddhist essays. But it was really a kind of a big project and the kind of project that I'm not very good at, you know, because it requires like a lot of sleuthing and careful work and I, I'm just like too, got too many things going on. I can't think straight most of the time. <laughs> so, so there's a wonderful woman in our, in our everyday Zen community, oh, yeah. Cynthia Schrager, who's got a doctorate in literature and is a br brilliant reader of texts and commentator on texts and sort of organizer of texts. <clears throat> and I asked her to help me with this. And she went and just found every single piece that there was available even like going into the attics of editors who didn't have online files, you know, but only paper files, mm. and found a whole bunch of stuff and then selected from it about half the material that I had written on Buddhism specifically. And then put it together, uh, she kind of sleuthed out the fact that I had had, without necessarily thinking about it, several themes that were run through my writing about Buddhism. And so she kind of defined those themes and divided the book into those four sections. Mm -hmm. And then she said, uh, I think, and I think this was also something that the Shambhala editors said, because when we first proposed the, this book to them, they were not too enthusiastic. They said, well, who wants to read a book of essays? Uh, so, but then they said, but, but maybe if there were some new writing involved. And so she had the idea, Cynthia did, 
that what I could do would be to write contemporary reflections, notes, you know, very informal, down and dirty kind of notes on each section of the book, reflecting on the essays in each section. So that was interesting to do, right? I said, oh, that, I, I didn't want to write a whole bunch of new material, but I thought that would be easy to do and it'd be fun to do to sort of look at it, read that section and comment on it. So that's what I did. And, I, and, I, and every one of the four sections has a fresh piece of some length where I reflect on the topic of that section and also look at some of the essays and comment on them, you know, uh, as I, uh, what I'm thinking in, in 2020 or 2021 about those essays. So that's what the book is. That's why it's called Notes and Reflections, because it is contemporary notes on, on the reflections of a lifetime of yeah. thinking about Buddhism in our world. Yeah, I think it's, that was a good idea. Yeah, it was a really good idea. It was a yeah, really good idea. It's really good. All right, well, people are going to go, what, when you greet me, I bow. And bowing, in general, that word is a toughie out here in the West. Yes. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think I told you this story, but I had a whole thing around bowing when I first went to India, kid. Mm -hmm. And I, I was looking for a guru named Karoli Baba, and I was going to meet Ramdas at actually Swami Muktananda's ashram. He and he kept saying, I, "I don't know where he is. I can't find him." I said, "All right, well, I'll go there. I'll meet you there." And 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 so the day before he came, I went, and of course, you go see Swami Muktananda, the guru of the ashram, and everybody is bowing. Mm -hmm. I had never bowed. Uh, before so as i did this and what in the fuck am i doing what is this you know i really went through a bunch of changes around yeah, it, yeah, yeah, right yeah. it was so foreign yeah and then uh next so ramdas came and i told him i said well how do you handle this what and he said look this is you know the the true self honoring the true self or however he said it god in me isn't honoring god in you and if you have a problem with it, this is great. You should work with that problem. Right, right. So, right. Yeah. So uh, I went back the next day because I was leaving because Ramdas did tell me where to go to meet Maharaji. And um, I saw him, but nothing changed. I still had this whole thing uh, about it in my mind. Yeah. Until I got to Neem Karoli Baba, when I saw him, I just, there was no thought at all. Boom. Yeah. Um, you know, that was a whole different uh, relationship. But yeah, so can you discuss when you greet me, I bow? I'd love well, it. Uh, yeah, that's, that's uh, from a Zen story. Mm. That is part, the title, there's a, the first essay in the book is called When You Greet Me, I Bow. Yeah. And, uh, there's a Zen story uh, about this, um, making it short, uh, a fellow goes to study with a teacher and the teacher says, yes, come and study with me, be my attendant, I'll, I'll teach you everything I know. And the attendant says, great. So he goes and hangs out with the guy, a year goes by and he says to him, um, a whole year has passed. And you haven't told me anything. You told me you were going to give me all your teachings, and you haven't really told me anything. So when are you going to start teaching me? And the teacher said, well, but I've been teaching you the whole time. When you greet me, I bow. When you stand next to me, I stand next to you. Uh, when you serve me tea, I take it. What more teachings do you want? So um, in this case, I think uh, the bow is not a prostra full prostration. I think it's meant to be, you know, a kind mm -hmm. of uh, ordinary, everyday gasho bow. But uh, so it's not really so much about bowing that story as much as it is about the teaching is in everyday life. And in this case, bow just is an everyday sort of gesture of greeting, not a prostration as you're speaking of it. Mm -hmm. But when you were talking there a minute ago, yeah, I also had trouble in the beginning with bowing, just like you did. And uh, it sort of makes you appreciate the um, strain uh, in American ideology, which says, 
I don't bow down to anybody. Nothing. Nobody, nobody's, nobody's a bigger shot than I am. I'm not bowing to anything. You know that, that sort of spirit that was so objectionable in in the last uh, handful of years. Uh, actually, you know, you appreciate. Oh my God, you know, it's in me. I'm an American too. I, I don't know about you, but it's also a Jewish thing. You don't bow down to. That's a very deeply Jewish trope. You know, do not bow to graven images. Yep. And Jews are not supposed to bow, although the uh, Chinese American guy, but uh, in the Chinese uh, Zen lineage, Hungshir, who you probably know about, wonderful uh, monastic and brilliant scholar, he wrote, I think, a PhD thesis on bowing. Hmm. Uh, he, I think Hungshir is the famous monastic who bowed his way from San Francisco to Seattle in the 1970s. He walked from San Francisco to Seattle, and every three or four steps, he did a full prostration all the way to Seattle. Mm. He kept wow. like a diary of his uh, adventures. Anyway, he wrote his PhD thesis on bowing, and he had a chapter on Jewish bowing. And I said to him, what? Jews don't bow. That's, that's like a thing. Jews don't bow. He said, no, actually they do. And he gave me a learned discourse about bowing in Judaism, which in fact is done, if you think about it, in various points in the prayer service. And nowadays, this is interesting, nowadays in American Judaism, they are reviving the ancient practice of doing a full prostration in a certain prayer on the high holidays. In the synagogue where I go sometimes, in the high holidays, they invite people to plots all the way down to the floor in the, in the you know, like in their suits or whatever, <laughs> uh, at certain points in the prayer. So this, this bowing, which is an expression, I think, uh, of, of humility, yeah. But I, but I don't think, uh, I think Ramdas is quite right. It's not, I am humble before you, other guy. It's, I am humble before what I am and what we are and what I have forgotten that I, that I actually am. And yeah. I'm humbling myself before that. And it's a great, that's actually a, a great practice, Paul. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Jewish, yes, I was brought up Jewish, conservative too, not yeah, reform too. yeah and went to all the high holidays and so on i was doing something earlier today where uh, somebody else's podcast and they were asking about that in particular my jewish all these jews went to the east what's up yeah, with it's, that it's, yeah. it's a famous thing yeah 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 absolutely and i said well the one thing that turned me off really was the uh, usher at the high holidays. You know, you had to pay like, you know, a lot of money for your seat yeah. and they would usher you to the seat. And, and all I can remember as a kid, God, this guy has the worst halitosis I ever. <laughs> that turned me off forever. And the person said, well, he hadn't eaten. It was the high holidays. It was probably Yom Kippur. <laughs> Everybody has high halitosis. On yeah, them. right. Yeah. Yeah, but no drink uh, either, no water, no nothing. No, no I know. Right. It's radical. Um, but so I went off to the east, and basically, Ramdas's story is kind of our story, which you know. Mm -hmm. But this, this is what interests me because I know how much you are connected to Jewish faith. Let's just call it that, mm -hmm. and and how you have been involved in Zen Buddhism for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And and you're making that work. Well, here's my little story. Uh, so one time, so we had a mentor, uh, all of us that were around Ramdas at that time. We had a f several mentors, and one of them was uh, a, a teacher of uh, a, a boys' school. He was the headmaster of a boys' school up in, in the Himalaya, in Nainital. And but he was in reality a knocked out yogi who mm -hmm. nobody knew about it. Actually, we're doing a film around it, which is so incredible. Mm. So I, I, I took my mom and I went to, took her to India. Right. And she was in by that time, at least conversant with what was mm -hmm. going on. And um, anyhow, we ended up in further up into the Himalayas. 
and so I'm there. This man used to go into uh, deep samadhi a lot, like, you know, anything would tick him off. It was kind of like Ramakrishna. His mother would come, and then next thing you know, he's gone. So, uh, but anyhow, so he, he actually asked us, well, he said, you know, you cannot leave your religion that you were brought up in. You don't, you don't go over and take on Hinduism or Buddhism and just leave it. It's just not, it's not like that. And um, he, and he said, well, in fact, uh, can you sing me a prayer from the Jewish faith? And my mother and I, I don't know, it seemed appropriate at the time, in you know, it's like Buddhist, Hindu, in Kadon, and nothing but God. There's nothing, nothing but God. Yeah. And he, um, so he came out and he, he went into Samadhi in that moment, but then he kept on about this. Um, he felt like the Western thing about dropping whatever you came up through completely and ignoring it was just not. Um, kosher. So I have not been able to do that. I have to say, I have tried at different times through studying a little Kabbalistic stuff or work just with different people that I respected, rabbis, you know, and I've done stuff recently with, with some really great ones. And Ram Dass, of course, he was friends with Shlomo and um forget who the other guy's name is. Zalman. Zalman, Zalman, yeah. Yeah. I have not been successful. Norman at at this and um I'd love to hear from you how you have managed I mean we are talking about first of all um I mean it's Jewish the that the uh the external and the internal and particularly the mystic part which the Kabbalah that starts to make more sense to me intellectually mm -hmm. but how have you entered into it and 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 all the way to leading um uh Meditation. Yeah, yeah. We, we have a Jewish meditation center that we founded in the, at the turn of the millennium. I founded it with uh, Rabbi Alan Liu, who was my close friend and also yeah. was a student with me. And he passed on, but the center is still going. So I'm actually pretty active in Jewish meditation retreats and work. Yeah. So, but yeah, can you start at the genesis? Yeah. I mean, you were yeah. in Zen for quite a while, and then something prompted you to move in this direction. Well, it was it was really willy nilly. It wasn't anything that came from inside of me. It was it came from the outside because, um, well, first of all, I, I didn't. Uh, a lot of people who grew up in Judaism had various objections to it, uh, hostilities to it for various good. Re everybody has good reasons why their childhood re religion was not sufficient or or not, you know, uh, inspiring. So many people have that story. I never had that story. I always thought Judaism was great. I was happy to be a Jew, and I thought it was a wonderful, exalted state to be in. You know, uh, everybody has their own state, but I was that was mine, and I was happy with it. So when I when I began to be interested in in meditation, um, I just thought that it was another kind of a thing. I didn't think of meditation as a religion or a religious practice. I thought of it as a almost like in a philosophical practice. I was studying, you know, philosophy and what's going on in this life, and that meant some re religion, but mostly philosophy. And literature, similarly, was a, a, a way to understand, you know, what we are as human beings. And that's, that was my, that was what I was interested in. Meditation seemed relevant. Judaism just seemed like my family tradition. It didn't seem to have anything to say to me about that. So I just, I didn't reject it, or I just said, okay, forget about that, I'm doing something else here. So that's what I did, and um, I always had, you know, a, a sense of uh, connection and loyalty to that as my tradition. I mean, I guess I was maybe somehow even unconsciously very aware of Jewish uh, oppression. You know, Jews had, I mean, for 2,000 years, people were trying to beat the Judaism out of the Jews. And being a stubborn son of a bitch, 
I, I, I refuse to be beaten, have anything beaten out of me. So I think partly out of sheer stubbornness, <laughs> I was always, you know, say, no, I'm, I'm a Jew and that's that. I don't care what anybody says, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was always, you know, positive about it, but didn't have any involvement with it. But then uh, my friend who was a Zen student with me and also a, a fellow writer, we met at the Iowa Writers Workshop, Alan Liu, long story that I won't go into, but by a series of really uh, unexplained coincidences, he went very quickly from being a Zen student who had been in the monastery with us to being a student at the rabbinical uh, seminary in New York and became a rabbi. And so we were very close friends and had been sharing our spiritual adventures as well as our writing life together for decades. So I kept up friendship with him when he went to rabbinical school and I would visit him at the rabbinical school and we were in a constant conversation about Judaism and what he was doing and his attitude was not, you know, okay, well, I'm now that I'm a Jew, you're a heathen, you know, and I don't want to talk to you anymore. No, we were still in conversation and we had mutual respect the whole time through. Mm-hmm. So we were developing a, a dialogue about this. And then when he eventually moved back to San Francisco, we uh, began to do things together. And he said, I want to do meditation together. Let's do events. So we began doing Judaism and Buddhism events. And we were shocked at how many people were interested in this. You know, mm. it was like at first he didn't even want to tell anybody in, in his congregation that he had this background in Buddhism. Uh, he tried to keep it a secret. He thought he'd lose his job, you know, if they found out about it. But eventually it became clear that in San Francisco it wasn't a problem and people, you know, uh, actually gave him credit for it. So then we started doing these events. And... Um, we were we found out that what we were doing without knowing we were doing it is we were, we were inviting all the people uh, who were practicing buddhism and hinduism and were mad at judaism <laughs> and didn't have a chance to express any of this because nobody cared about it in the buddhist center nobody cared about it in the hindu center why would you talk about judaism but we were creating a venue for people who were practicing buddhism and hinduism to come to us and bitch about Judaism. And that's what happened for about two or three years. We had these really exciting events where people would complain bitterly about their parents and about their <laughs> rabbi and this and that. And, and he, was, he was a new rabbi and he felt like somehow the need to defend the faith. So these, were, these events were very hard on him. But I said, but look, you know, look at all the good we're doing. We're helping, helping people process all this and heal a little bit. He said, yeah, but it's too hard on me. So we stopped. He couldn't do it anymore. Wow. And then he said, let's resume. But instead of doing a Buddhist and a Jewish event, let's just be Jewish meditation. So I said, you're right. If we just do Jewish meditation, then we're not inviting the complainers. So good, we'll do it that way. But I will have nothing to say because what do I know about Judaism? I mean, I grew up in it, but I, I didn't, you know, I don't have an education. He said, well, that's okay. You can talk about it anyway, and you can study and you can learn. Uh-huh. I said, whoa, what a great idea. So that's when I embarked on a, on a serious study in my own way, of course, of Jewish text and, and, and Judaism. And uh, that was, I don't know, 30 years ago, 25 years ago. I don't know. It was long, long before we started Makor Or in 2000. So ever since then, I've been studying and have my own sort of quirky, weird, you know, Zen take on, on Judaism. But it's not outside the sphere of what a lot of rabbis and respectable Jewish thinkers nowadays see in Judaism. So um, I think that it's not hard to me, you know, like I read, you know, having been oriented for so many years into Buddhism, uh, not only Zen per se, but general Buddhism. I mean, I mean, I study early texts and I study Mahayana texts and all kinds of Buddhism beyond Zen and, you know, got my master's degree in religious studies in Buddhism. So I've studied a, a fair amount for a non-professional scholar. And, um, when I read Jewish text, I see a lot of the same things there. So when you think about it, doesn't it make sense that human beings need 
some sort of religious sensibility, like why would it exist if we didn't need it? And it's not outmoded as we're, you know, they thought it was outmoded, you know, in 1850, people thought, well, in a hundred years, there won't be any more religion. But of course, they were totally wrong about that. We seem to have a perennial need for religion, no matter how scientific and how smart we get. Uh, some people don't need it or think they don't, but humanity as a whole seems to need it. If that's true, then doesn't it make sense that there would be similar tropes and similar feelings and similar attitudes, differences, of course, in cultures, but some fundamental stuff like, you know, we die and what about it, you know, for example, <laughs> that I think is true no matter what culture you're in, you know. Yeah. So I began to see all that was in Judaism too. And I began to see that Jewish texts are vastly to be interpreted. And, and Jews knew that from the beginning. So in other words, most Jewish people, even educated, intelligent Jewish people, even if they have some Jewish education, are not necessarily penetrating readers of Talmud. Well, when you read Talmud, you realize that, my God, you know, these people were radically reinterpreting this ancient text. Mm -hmm. Radically. And, and I, I like to cite... Um, an, uh, an article that I once read by Kenneth Rexroth. He was writing a review of Martin Buber's Hasidic tales. And Rexroth absolutely hated the Bible, the Old Testament. He thought the Old Testament was the reason for the whole horror of Western culture. All the world wars were because of the Old Testament. <laughs> he really hated it. And he loved Asia, right? He loved the Asian tradition. Anyway, he's writing about Buber, and he says that, he says, uh, Buber writes about the Hasidic masters who read in the Torah the opposite of what the Torah actually says. And he's right, because very often, and it wasn't only the Hasidic masters who did this, it was being done as early as the Talmudic period. The rabbis were reading the text and they had an unbelievably postmodern, sophisticated sense of how to read text. They read it like Derrida reads it, honestly. It's unbelievable to think about it, but when you go back and look at this, that's what's going on. They are taking a text that they and the assumption is, this is holy writ, you do not deny it. So let's find a way to be vast in our interpretation of it. And they did very often say, this looks like it says that, but actually it says the opposite. And then they would go about proving, by using text, how this text that seems to say one thing says the opposite. Wow. So in other words, Judaism is a very much more open-ended conversation than one would think. And you need to kind of uh, orient yourself to it a little bit. It's very fascinating, actually. Very, very interesting. And did you also take up Kabbalah? Uh, to some extent, mm, yes. I mean, like, I, I actually somebody gifted me with the whole 20 volumes of Danny Matt's masterful translation of the Zohar, which is the Kabbalistic text. But actually, my orientation in Judaism was not through Kabbalah. It was actually through just the ordinary five books of Moses and the, and the, and the Tanakh and the Psalms and the ordinary stuff. Later on, I came to Kabbalah and read that, but I, but I didn't need the mystical Judaism to appreciate what was already there in, in Judaism to begin with. I, I think the mystics were, were really, um, in a way, um, not adding so much. It was already there to begin with. Mm, really? That's my view, anyway. Mm -hmm, yeah. Uh, so, and then there is one other uh, elephant that we really haven't talked about in this little discussion, and uh, I'll point it out by virtue of something, another Ramdas story, but we did all these retreats when he was alive in Maui and our Buddhist yeah. friends used to come, you know, our mutual Buddhist. Yeah, yeah we have mutual Jack and, and yeah, Jack and Sharon and Joseph and, and, Joseph. and Roshi. Yeah. And right, yeah. Right, right. So 
he would just be talking or something, and then somehow in his mind, he the word soul would come, yeah. and he would. Uh, so he'd say whatever in whatever context it was, and then say Jack was sitting to his right or something. He'd he'd look. Sorry, <laughs> so sorry about that. <laughs> and they'd laugh, and they had this. You know, we had all of this going on for for years and years. But um, you, on the other hand, Zen person that you are. You have a lot. Soul is like nothing to talk about for you. Neither yeah. is God. God, yeah, right. Okay, how do we, how do we uh, get well, that? Well, you know, I mean, uh, if you want to get on the level of uh, <clears throat> propositions and, and, and logic, you could certainly would have to say that, you know, uh, Judaism, Christianity, pretty much any theistic tradition proposes an eternal soul as an entity, Buddhism starts with the proposition that there are no actual entities. So that's certainly uh, two different things. They're opposite of each other. Yeah. But, you know, when you get into actual practice and you get into exegesis and, 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 and commentary and, and how people use these words and what they mean to people and how they work with them and react to them, those, those official differences disappear. So officially, there's, there, I think there's actually a Zen saying, like, officially, officially, you know, not even a hair can get through. But unofficially, the whole world passes through all the time. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like that. Uh, so, uh, you know, so I, and you know, I often point out that in Zen mind, beginner's mind, Suzuki Roshi uses the word God several times, offhandedly, and approvingly. He just, you know, it's not a big deal. I mean, it's not like he's talking about that. It's like he just mentions, you know, God. Because uh, like everybody who was uh, in Asia, who was born in the 20th century, they were very well aware of Western religions. And if they went to seminary, as he did, they studied Western religions and they had an idea of Western religions and they didn't reject them or think that they were... Uh, off base because they could see that the West was taking over the world, so they were interested in Western <laughs> religions. So, so uh, he used the word God within the context of his own understanding of Buddhism and of life, as do I. And Zen, particularly of all the Buddhist traditions, is, you know, founded on the idea that like don't get stuck on concepts. You know, don't don't have a, a punch list of doctrinal statements that you cannot contravene. Zen is beyond the statement that can or cannot be contravened. Use anything that you need to express the Dharma as you experience it in your in your living. So Suzuki Roshi was not no problem for him to say God, and the same with me. You know, I don't have a problem with that. In one of the chapters, uh, you were interviewed by somebody, uh, and she asked, have you had moments of feeling directly connected to God? And you said, I usually feel directly connected to God. I'm alive, and I can tell I'm alive. <laughs> that's great. Well, that's it, right? Uh, and, you, and then they said, well, what's God like? And you said, God is like being alive, like life, like being, which of necessity involves death and not being which is where the God part comes into it. Exactly. Yeah. So I think the part where you think, as most people do most of the time, that they will never die, even though if you ask them, they'll tell you they will. But actually, if you think about how the way people live, they live as if death is not a reality or is somehow like a bracketed reality that they don't need to worry about now. But if you realize that death is like time. That's what death is, right? It's time, which is like killing us. Time is killing us, even while we're having this conversation, you know, little by little. So living in time is living in death. Living in death is living in what's beyond your consciousness, because you don't know, you're not capable of understanding death with this limited body and minds, but yet you're living in the middle of it all the time. And that's just to me like 
that is just a synonym for, for God or awakening or Buddha or whatever words different traditions use to indicate that which cannot exactly be either experienced yes. or described. Mm, yeah. Uh, getting back to what we I mentioned in the very beginning about the foundation of the book being around relationship, which I found the most curious part of it. I hadn't expected that. Uh. Um, and there's, at one point here in the very beginning, uh, religious life isn't about truth as much as it is about relationships. Uh, truth, uh, perhaps truth and relationship are one and the same. Yeah, how about a little... Uh, explication of of that and and everything around relationship and, we, and of course we're you are not and we are not just talking about because as soon as you say relationship people immediately go my wife you know my right my husband my partner my right. better half whatever yeah but this uh, the much broader sense and much more real exactly yeah right i mean one of the things that you can draw from the Zen literature, if you think about it and, re and study it and contemplate it deeply, and I don't think this is true only of Zen, is that um, every instance of awakening, of reality appearing in its true guise, is a moment of two things meeting. At the point of meeting, reality arises. So, uh, you know, a pebble hits a bamboo and, and there's sound arises and, and, and a person's awakening. So in that case, the relationship between the ear and the sound, or you could say between the pebble and the person, that's a moment of awakening. In a lot of the Zen stories, someone says something to somebody else, just a word that arrests the person and then awakening occurs. So, and Buddhist um, understanding of consciousness, I think, has to do with this, that, that there is no, that, that's why Buddha was so firm on the idea of no soul or no self, because that would imply that there's a moment without meeting. This is an eternal thing that doesn't need to be met by something else. Mm. No, there's uh -huh. no such thing. There's only moments of meeting. There's only when, when there's only an object of consciousness meets the organ, experience arises, life arises. So every, every moment of consciousness is a moment of meeting. And a moment of meeting is literally relationship. So there are no things, I and mean, that's the emptiness teachings in Buddhism. You know, shunyata literally means there are no things, there are only meeting points in which something arises from the meeting, but there are no things that are separate from each other there's only those meeting points, the, only the nexus points. So, and, and then, then Martin Buber has a wonderful phrase, which I think is the epilogue to one of my books, all real living is meeting. And, and Buber did, I think, apply this idea specifically to human relationships and also, I think, to the relationship with the divine. But I think Buddhism extends that to mean uh, every moment is actually a moment of meeting. A moment would not arise if there were not a moment of meeting as that moment. Mm -hmm. So that's what I mean when I say relationship. And if you start with that, then the next thought that comes to mind, especially under the influence of Mahayana Buddhism and its emphasis on compassion and love, then you realize uh, every moment is a very tender moment of meeting. Whatever you meet in that moment is something that you appreciate. Even if it's something painful, it's something also beautiful. So all of our human encounters are valuable, precious, and beautiful. And every other encounter, our encounters with nature, our encounters with text. You know, if you're a religious person, a Jew studying texts is so thrilled, you know, by the text. I remember years after uh, I was a boy studying with my rabbi, going to visit him one time in my 20s, and I remember him telling me that when he was a boy, he would go to the synagogue every Shabbat, and he would be thrilled 
to hear the Torah read mm -hmm. because, and he could understand the Hebrew, he was a very, you know, from a learned family, because he would be so thrilled to hear the story. It was so thrilling to him. He couldn't wait, you know. So, in other words, that's hard for us to imagine, but he would be thrilled by the word of Torah the way that uh, a haiku poet would be thrilled by the cicada or the blossom, you know, and just be completely undone by it. So anything we meet with full presence, you know, literally undoes us, you know, in that moment. Mm. It's something precious and wonderful, moment after moment. So being alive, I think, is God and is awakening. It's, that's what I meant. It's always there, you know. Yeah. So even when I lose track of it and I'm grumbling or something like that, I'm never, it's never too far away. I mean, I realize that, you know, thank God I can grumble. You know, I can be annoyed. You know, I'm, I'm still alive. That's great. You know, I can still be annoyed. Yeah. <laughs> That's so great. Well, you know, it, uh, here, oh, I got a little lesson here. My, well, not a lesson, something I knew, but it got brought to the fore. Um, you, you mentioned of the good fortune of being married for more than 40 years. Right. You should write a book about that, too. Yes, yes, relationship advice, right? That's my Absolutely. next Absolutely. Well, and there's a bunch of it in here as well. But um, so I, what did you say here? Um, you said something about uh, naturally there are pushes and pulls with any relationship. I'm afraid, but I'm afraid because of my having remained in my imagination, despite myself, and my better intentions, the romantic loner who sometimes can't penetrate his own thoughts and vague impulses long enough to pay attention to somebody else. I thought, what did I? I wrote that. No, I wrote that. No, <laughs> but um, but I also it it really it's funny, you know, just a word like you just said, something can just snap and open up a whole, and that's that relationship. But it opened up a whole world because. When I was a kid and I was over in India and I'm in the high Himalayas with this enlightened being and the whole nine yards and I'm a yogi now. <laughs> this is who I am. I, have, I kept that thing going through my, uh, I got married and had children and there was always, there was a little, there was always a holding back because that's not really who I am. I'm really this yogi this adventurer and you know talk about a romantic um illusion uh delusion <laughs> i was all so when you i read this of you and i just went oh my god right it brought it back what ridiculous thank god to have a sense of humor though well uh, but, but on the other hand on the yeah. other hand uh i think it's a good illusion to oh. think that you're a yogi right i, I think it's a good illusion and it's also another illusion to think that you're a father and a husband. So I think that the, the trick is, you know, if you say, well, I'm really a father and a husband, and it's an illusion that I'm a yogi, then uh, that's maybe not as good as saying, well, I have the illusory identity of, of a father and a husband and the illusory identity yeah, right. and yeah. priest and the illusory identity of a human being. And all those identities are all true and false. Mm. And when I'm in, in any one of them, I want to completely embrace it as fully as I can and realize it's just temporary and none of it is real and none of it is unreal. So I think that, that actually, um, I think a lot of people oppress themselves with sort of settling for a quote-unquote grown-up identity. Well, I better, you know, forget about all my youthful idealism and now just sort of like be a corporate drone. No, don't forget about your youthful idealism. Keep it all the way up to the yeah. end. Yeah. Just, just don't make it into a problem for yourself, but don't forget about it. Yeah, it's like the, uh, the 60s. Oh, that was just a bunch of guff. <laughs> we were just, you know, having fun. Meanwhile, God, that's so ever-present for me now in terms of I, I meet so many next-gen people through what I do and all that, and uh, the absolute commitment to 
peace, love, and understanding, uh, I think, su uh, supersedes wherever. Because I, I remember the social action part that was going on in the late 60s, early 70s. Yeah. Yeah. I was not there at all. And I yeah. knew many people who weren't. We were interior. It was yeah. just going internal. Now, there's a, there seems to be really... Uh, Next Gen is operating on both, uh, yeah. which you talk about in the book as well. It's a social yeah, engagement. And yeah, I was very involved in politics uh, in the 60s. I actually went to begin Zen practice because of political burnout. I, I'd really come to the end of what I, I mean, the next step for me was to you know be um, bombing banks or something, which I was not going to do. <laughs> so uh, that's how far I went with it. With really? it. Um, I'm from Canada, so you have to understand we are a different breed yes, in yes, that that's way. True. That's true. Yes, yeah. Can Canadians are, are sane. Thank God for the Canadians. <laughs> I don't They're know, mostly but mostly crazy. Yeah. Just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, um, uh, I th yes. I mean, there's no doubt that the things that happened in the '60s made permanent changes that we're still coping with, right? And younger generations, I think, have taken on a lot of it. And it is very inspiring. Some of the uh, key uh, activists now, the younger activists, mm. also have spiritual commitments, and they realize that to make uh, political action sustainable, you have to have community and spirituality in a way that the activists of the 60s didn't realize. Yeah. Absolutely, one. So that's very inspiring to see that they're a lot wiser than than we were. But also, you know, I'm one of the things. A persistent thought of mine is that every generation is really, in some way, radically different from every other generation. You know, like the 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 events and the and the visions, the literal perceptions visual and oral and so on that form a generation are different for each generation yeah. and so it's a very beautiful thing that um, a way of looking at the world let's say we're about the same age you and I probably a way of looking at the world that our parents had that way of looking at the world is almost gone mm -hmm. it's almost it almost doesn't exist on earth anymore and the way that we look at the world, because of the way we were formed in our generation, is different from the coming generations. They've taken something from us and changed it to suit who they are. But the way that we were formed and the way that we are is unique to our generation. And it's slowly passing away. It's still here because we're not all dead yet, but we will, be, we will all be dead fairly shortly and then that whole generation it'll be like we look at the 1920s and how people were in the 1920s uh, and we have a projection what that was that's how people will look at us you know yeah. <laughs> in the 1960s and we feel it you know it's part of the way we speak and the way we act and, the, and, and especially nowadays the way men are men and women are women who were born and raised in that era is different from the way men are men and women yeah. are nowadays that's been a radical shift it's interesting you know how that happens yeah uh talking about relationship and, and and i think i mentioned when earlier part of this conversation about you do cover a lot of different bases and sexuality is one of them and i found this very uh very interesting sexuality may be the natural exp expression of a pure and selfless love it's also in the deep economy of human emotion, chameleon-like. According to inner conditions, it takes on many colors. Clearly, the body only seldom operates in the pure service of selflessness. Clearly, the body only seldom operates in selflessness. More often, the liberative signals that are always potentially present because we can at any moment fall in love with the whole world get distorted by confusion of ego. We, con we become conditioned to see sexuality of, as a replacement for so much else in our, in our lives that we need, but we are unable, unable to come into contact with. So sexuality becomes, un uh, among other things, a way to 
express a need for power, a way to avoid loneliness, frustration, or fear. Uh, and again, this is me reading this book and reading, and it's just triggering uh, because when I was first in India, and with this being, I had exactly what you described there. There was the only, I recognized, actually, thank God for Ramdas's knack at psychology. So there was somebody to talk to, right, at that time. And he was uh, quite a bit older, or reasonably older, so he had experience. But it was, yes, the the falling in love was so deep and profound that sexuality was intimately involved because that's the only way we were taught to express that love. So, yeah, maybe just explicate that a little bit more. And it's all necessary. And you say when that happens, you know, you can't, darkness comes as much as there's light. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I should preface all this by saying that I am not an expert on sexuality by any means, and I'm not a person who you know, has a wide study of and personal experience with all kinds of sexuality. So, so mostly I don't really know uh, what I'm talking about, and I'm just talking maybe from the standpoint of my own limited life experience and, and my intuitions about the Dharma. But, um, yeah, it seems like sexuality is a very different thing in very different, for among, you know, with different people in different situations. Sometimes it's an expression of love. Sometimes it's an expression of lust. Sometimes it's, you know, a release of anger. I mean, there's a million different things that sexuality mm. could, could be. And, and, of course, uh, it's often, you know, quite brutal and kind of horrifying, you know, like a, a rape is a terrible thing to even contemplate, you know. Um, so, uh, so clearly the idealized uh, concept of sexual love as an express, sexuality as an expression of love is, is beautiful uh, when, it, when it happens. And of course it, it does happen probably a lot, but it is, certainly does not account for even the majority or of sexual activity in, in this lifetime. Mm. But um, yes, I think that, you, you know, so what exactly is sexuality? Um, I mean, sometimes people have the term um, genital sexuality, mm. right? Because yeah. that could be sexuality, which is affection and, and a kind of real erotic warmth between people that is not, uh, doesn't, is not expressed by and doesn't want to be expressed by genital sexuality, what we would actually call sexual acts, right? Mm. So in that sense, one could say that love in all of its forms is erotic, is to some extent sexual. And what we call sex is just a special uh, particular instance of that kind of love, or maybe sex is not love at all. So I do think, I mean, it's, it's no surprise to me that in spiritual communities, as in other communities where there can be real connection with people, that there can be uh, violations of trust because spiritual practice is real warmth arises between people, real connection arises between people that has an erotic element to it. So, and, and even in cases like, um, I mean, you know, there's, there's the predator abusing people, uh, using his power to, you know, draw people into the bed and, you know, there's that. But there's also the mentor and the mentee who really are connected to each other in the heart. And then they have sex because they think that that's what their connection means. And then it turns into disaster yeah. because of that. Yeah. So it's not a surprise that those disasters happen a lot because there is an erotic element, I think, to spiritual connection that I think is to be understood and affirmed and, and preserved and appreciated 
But we apparently don't know how to do that very well because we've been so, uh, our, our understanding of sexuality and genital sexuality has been so one-sided for so long that, like you said, when we have a spiritual connection, we think that means we're supposed to go to bed with one another. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, that what you just expressed, Norman, is extremely important and is uh, is something that, uh, uh, you know, what's been going on in spiritual communities now for, well, yeah. I mean, it's probably going on forever, but in this moment it's coming to the light in a way that uh, uh, hasn't quite come, you know, before that. So I think people, this is a, a very uh, uh, core I think representation of what does go on, and to it's like don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I think that we could be now necessarily in a period where we are throwing the baby out with the bathwater hmm. because we were so overbalanced on one side. Now we do. It makes sense to protect women from being abused and children from being abused as they have been, and it's been and it's been concealed. But hopefully, in the end, we'll actually understand that um, preventing that kind of abuse should not mean that we're scared of loving one another, you know, for fear, for fear that we'll be accused of abuse. I mean, it's a sad thing that a teacher in a high school, male or female, feels like I better not be close to my students or express affection with a touch or a smile for fear of being accused of, you know, this kind of thing. So I think we need to come back to balance and, and we will. Yeah. Well, we're getting close to, we are at the end here of the allotted time, but not with, a, there's, I have to say that this is something you wrote at the beginning, but I think this could be, a neat little prayer for where we're at right now to close this. Um, and you, you say, I, I am these days literally praying that when this pandemic is over, and you wrote this, I think, during the pan pandemic, these comments, anyhow, during the pandemic, our world will be overcome with a moral imperative to take care of one another ensuring that no human being will have to needlessly suffer for want of food, housing, education, or medical care. Compassion, feeling the suffering of others and caring for their spiritual and physical well-being, is surely the heart of all religious traditions, teachings. This, this is it. Aside from throughout the book, by the way, and I... We, we'd have to do about, uh, well, 10 podcasts to get through as much you got going here. <laughs> so maybe I'm going to bug you to do this a little bit more. Uh, but uh, certainly, the, uh, as you say, the foundation of the book is around relationship. The, the foundation beyond that is around love. And people go, wait, no, Zen, cold, bubble, you know. I mean, I spent a lot of time, I know you know uh, Roshi Halifax, sure. and I've spent quite, quite a lot of good time with her in, in uh, <laughs> at Ram Dass when he was alive. And she used to say, you know, I come here for a heart transplant. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> and we used to just hang out in that space the whole time. And uh, so lovely to hang out with you, too. Thank you so much, and thanks for reading the book so closely. It's wonderful to hear you hear my words in your in your voice. It's beautiful. Thanks. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And everybody, uh, when you greet me, I bow, Norman Fisher, and uh, you'll. Uh, is it out yet? I forget. Yeah, it's out. May eighteenth was the public. Oh, okay. So it came out. And we'll link it up so you can get it. There's, it's, it's very rich. And uh, since mind rolling is all about us helping each other find a way to balance our day-to-day -day lives, that this can really go a long way towards that. So again, thank you, Norman. Thank this you. is mind rolling on Be Here Now Network. Go to Be Here Now Network, and uh, you will catch something new. Norman, we have Alan Watts is joining us oh, from the beyond. Oh, wow. 
So he's going to be, uh, we've got his son, Mark, uh, introducing oh, his father's oh, work. Oh, great. Yeah, so we're yeah. going to have Alan. Video of him and audio and video. Both. Mostly audio. Uh -huh. uh, we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll, it's not like Ramdas for some reason from the very beginning they were filming him and they were taping him and they were doing everything uh, there's a little less of that with Alan but there's plenty of it mm -hmm. so yeah so everybody you'll uh, tune in to Alan Watts and we will see you next time thank you take care bye bye <laughs> <laughs>